Ladies and gentlemen and Corner Kick fam, welcome back to the Corner Kick podcast. Joining us once again, not going to his brother's wedding and catching a deadly virus, it is Nathan Strauss. Hello, hello. (laughs) And also, uh, one of the few Liverpool players left remaining on the pitch following this international break, it's Caleb Rhodes. Caleb, Jurgen Klopp might need to field you at left back come uh, the Leicester match next week. Or, Or right back. Or center back, or midfield. Center midfield. I think I'm more prolific than Firmino, so it might just be a, a purely sporting decision. <laughs> so we're gonna hit you guys with a bit more of a conceptual episode today. We're gonna do something that we like to call the unfulfilled promise eleven, the unfulfilled promise XI, where we're gonna go through. We were inspired by a New York Times article written by Rory Smith about Patrick Bamford and about how you know some people had pulled the plug on his career somewhat in the media, but he found the perfect situation from him or for him in order to become, you know, the prolific Premier League striker that we see in Marcelo Bielsa's Leeds team today. The article is called There is No Such Thing Bad Player. It's really brilliant. It's a look at Patrick Bamford's story and we'll, we'll link it in the show notes. But before we get on to the unfulfilled promise XI and we discuss, you know, some FM Wonder Kids and promising players from years past and look at how their careers has faded out since they were long talked about as a vaunted prospect in the game and probably create the best, you know, FIFA 11 or FIFA 12 career mode team of all time. We're going to we're going to we're going to quickly do a few minutes on the international break that is turning into as we predicted a bit of a disaster on a COVID and injury front. Nathan, there's been some high profile COVID cases from certain players and also some high-profile injuries as well, as we predicted on our last podcast, that uh, this international as, break might not have been the greatest idea of all time. Yeah, as literally every single person with half a brain could have told you, uh, in, a, in a world ravaged by a pandemic and with players who had previously been you know, relatively sequestered with their teams, maybe having an entire community of international travel uh, and cross-contamination isn't a great idea. And of course, on the injury front, maybe it's not a great idea to have players who are playing once every you know, three or four days continue to play once every three or four days with a totally different team, more exposure, less regulations, uh, and in meaningless games. Uh, so I, I don't even know. We could start off with the injuries. I mean, you're seeing high-profile players and low-profile players alike go down with injuries more and more frequently there was no preseason this year and these international breaks have been kind of shoehorned in players like Casper Schmeichel or any player on Liverpool who Nick can talk about Jordan Henderson uh pretty much pretty much you know pretty much every major club has had some kind of player go down uh with an injury um and these international breaks are not helping however I do think that while in general I'm pretty content to to lay the blame on UEFA and FIFA for sanctioning these international games, I do think in the COVID world uh, there has to be a little bit of personal responsibility taken uh, by maybe the most famous Egyptian in the world right now. I don't think that's necessarily a stretch to say that Mosala is probably the most famous that has the highest goal profile of any Egyptian, but just if I were the most famous person from a country, which I'm not, and I were to hypothetically be attending a massive traditional wedding of this country, knowing that there would be press there and many pictures taken, hypothetically, I probably would wear a mask and not basically be in the center of what looked like an Egyptian hora surrounded by 200 of his closest family members and friends. So Mo Salah, Diagnosed with COVID-19, allegedly, according to the Egyptian uh, Footballing Federation, although there was some uncertainty around that. 
And I don't know, man, if I'm the mayor of Liverpool, who's been seeing, you know, 25 to 30,000 cases per day, I would be absolutely livid at such a public figure doing something so incredibly dumb. Yeah, I think I'm I'm willing to cut Salah a bit of slack in that regard because it was his brother's wedding. It wasn't like it was like some some you know college friend or some school friend that he was going to visit. I think oh, right. the is, virus is... just doesn't care. It's <laughs> <laughs> no, I know. The, the virus I know. is like, oh, it's your brother. Like, don't worry, I got you. Right? Like... No, I understand. I I think you guys know what I'm talking about. You know, when it is you know a family event, it's a bit harder to scrutinize someone although i do agree that there's absolutely no mask wearing or social distancing going on in those photos whatsoever which from a liberal i think i even mentioned it on our podcast last week where i was like "Ooh, these pictures are coming out of mosala at his brother's wedding and i was like oh, that's probably doesn't bode well considering sadio mane has also and tiago have tested positive uh for COVID 19 in the liverpool squad as well i think jordan jikiri also had a COVID scare but it turned out it was a false positive but yeah i guess Starting off from a Liverpool perspective, it has not been the best international break of all time. In fact, I think this is probably the worst injury crisis that I've ever experienced as a fan. Uh, It started two days into the international break when we learned that Joe Gomez suffered a patellar tendon injury and he'll be out for what looks like could be the rest of the season. Liverpool has not given a confirmation, but that is our two first team center backs who play a majority of our games, who will be missing most of the season, him and Virgil van Dijk. Fabinho and Thiago are going to be back in training, but you can't really you know, rely on them to be back fully fit at 100% for the Leicester match. Andy Robertson went down with a hamstring injury for Scotland. Jordan Henderson came off at halftime for England with a muscle issue. It is just not <laughs> looking great for Liverpool right now. You have a total of 16 first-team injuries or COVID cases uh, leading to players missing out this season. That is a whole starting 11 and five players that you could put on the bench. You just kind of have to step back and laugh at how ridiculous this is getting. But also, you have to also really feel for Liverpool because even though they had the drubbing 7-2 to Aston Villa, which kind of put their title defense into question, they had rebounded from that really well, and they almost picked up a maximum of 12 points. They're in third in the Premier League table right now. And I actually think that when Klopp deploys his starting 11 against Leicester, it's going to end up looking like a halfway decent team because the Liverpool squad is pretty deep. But we are missing eight first-team players right now, <laughs> which is kind of unprecedented for a team trying to defend their title. If there is an argument to have international breaks right now, it is clearly being able to watch nil-nil draws between the U.S. and Wales. So obviously that makes it all okay. Yeah, but right now, essentially, like everything bad with internationals, unfortunately, is just getting completely compartmentalized to Liverpool, right? Like if they just spread some of these injuries around, spread some of this disease around a little bit more, right? Like we would... (laughs) Like it, it would make the argument much more clear, right? But like there are very few people I feel like in soccer that are super sympathetic to being like, oh no, the international is is hurting the defending champions of England. Oh no, we should we should stop internationals, right? Like it doesn't really pull at the heartstrings of uh, very much, and it doesn't make it feel super urgent. But obviously, it is very urgent because we're seeing tons of injuries accumulate because players haven't gotten a break once again. We're just seeing that internationals are a terrible idea and it is dumb luck that more catastrophic things haven't happened. And for all we know, you know, when the Premier League teams and the La Liga teams and the Ligue 1 teams, et cetera, return to their squads, someone's going to have COVID and suddenly we will see a wider outbreak. Um, but as of now, it just seems to me that it's just complete luck that, that nothing worse has happened. A lot of worse things could have happened because you look at the Brazil national team and there is that right back Menino who tested positive for COVID after one training session with the likes of, you know, Ederson, Allison, Roberto Firmino, Gabriel Jesus, a lot of these prominent Premier League stars and La Liga stars, you know, they're, they're catching it. And there's also uh, Vida, the Croatian player whose positive COVID test came back at halftime of the uh, Croatia match a few days ago. And so he had to get subbed off promptly. So I think you are right, Caleb, that there are, you know, it is kind of a thin veneer that is at work right now. And we're we're certainly skating on thin ice when it comes to how disastrous COVID could be. I will say, though, I was thinking today, um, watching the, the Belgium-England game, about how the best way to go about uh, hosting the Euros this upcoming summer would be. And I think for once 
the best choice of venue would be Sochi, right? You just ha- you create a little bubble in Sochi. You have the Olympic Village and this massive stadium that's like fully modern. It's not like you're giving extra profit to Russia because no fans are going to be in attendance. Um, and you basically create, you know, uh, the Disney resort experience for these players in Sochi. At this point, you don't need any more like qualifying matches. Like we know everyone, we know the full, uh, the full picture for Euro 21 slash 2020. Um, clearly the plan to play each game in like a different country or a different city cannot happen. Um, there's just no way like right now when you're having teams having to petition, their own governments for travel permits, um, like Denmark and Iceland. Uh, clearly, you can't plan on hosting like a an intercontinental tournament. Maybe the future of, you know, international soccer in a COVID world is creating these, you know, little mini bubbles, at least for major tournaments. But then again, I just think that this particular international break has coincided with, I would just say, the the global second wave of COVID. Um, and I think the optics are particularly bad now, um, even compared to the first international break. As you see, you know, nations adding record-breaking numbers of COVID uh, pretty much each day right now. Yeah, and I think this just gets back to what uh, Tony Kreuss was talking about before the international break when he said that he feels that players are quote-unquote puppets. I mean, it's like we, we talked about this a lot during the summer, that these players are humans as well as you know footballers and global superstars and they are you know like Mo Salah they are going to make mistakes but it's also they can't just be seen as commodities there has to be a point where you know UEFA and FIFA just say look like in order to have any players left to field in these international marquee fixtures we're going to need to you know put a pause on this at some point also I I just did a a quick google on on the current state of the Sochi Olympic Village to kind of follow up on Nathan's idea uh it's not looking good it's not looking good I mean so the Sochi Olympic Village already had issues way back when when their doors were made of cardboard and Olympians would video themselves literally punching through the doors just for shits (laughs) um or like an uh uh a Russian fan like running up behind an England fan and smacking them over the head with a chair. Oh my god, I'd forgotten about that, dude. That was wild because you had that, uh, and that was right following the twenty the Euros in twenty sixteen. Point being, I think Euro twenty twenty one should have a bubble, but I don't think Sochi is the uh, the location for it. I think the thing is like UEFA knows or FIFA know that they can make money off of the Russian Federation, right? Like, it's such an easy place. Like, Russia will be like, here's, you know, a lump sum of cash to come bring the Euros to uh, to Russia. Yeah. No, but I'm, I'm just saying that, like, literally, like, it's not like there's this, like, set of beautiful facilities that have been well-maintained. Mm-hmm. It's right. like, it's like Verdansk. It's more Verdansk. Well, anyways, the good news for us is that there's four more days of the international break for things to go more wrong than they already are. But, lads, let's move on to the bulk of our episode. Nathan. Take us into this conceptual idea that we have floating right now, the unfulfilled promise XI. So one of the things that I think we football fans like to do a lot is hype up young players and young prospects. Everyone wants to see who will be the next Messi, who will be the next Ronaldo, or before that, who will be the next Maradona or the next Pele. Indeed, I think that was actually one of the founding parts of our friendship back in the day was talking about you know, football manager wonder kids. Uh, Nick, I remember signing Lucas Ocampos in our Arsenal career mode, uh, our, our Arsenal football manager career mode. Ante Korich. And Ante Korich, who I think might feature in this episode a little bit. Um, <laughs> but we decided to revisit some of these, you know, wonder kids who didn't pan out. Everyone knows the ones who are panning out, right? Your, your Erling Hollands, your Kylian Mbappes. But what about the ones who didn't quite make it? So, we will be bringing to you a sort of very hypothetical 11 of players who were once thought to be great and just for a variety of circumstances haven't lived up to the hype. So do we want to start off at the goalie position? Yeah. And just before, like it's kind of hard. And just before we start, I think Nathan is absolutely right. Like just, it's a variety of circumstances that these players didn't work out. I think they're all talented players. And I think in order to make it to the professional stage of the game, you do have to have you know, some level of talent, but like Rory Smith says in his New York Times article, it's just sometimes 
not the right situation for a player or dealing with injuries or there's some personal intrigue going on that makes it so this player's career flops. So it's always interesting to see who we were talking about six, seven years ago as the next big thing. And now looking where we are in November 15th, 2020, uh, shall we begin with the goalkeeper position? I, I was going to say, so Keppa is the name that tops my list. Keppa is mine. But, but the issue is, I think that he was, he broke through a little too late to have been like a traditional wonder kid. Like he made, he was what, like 21 or 22. Well, here's the thing is, I, think, make- I, think, I think 20 to 23 is like a pretty, is essentially like 18 to 20 for any other positional player, right? Because goalkeepers play long into you know, their thirties. So I think, you know, 20 to 23 is could be considered to be a wonder kid for a goalkeeper. My, my other shout out would have been Ruben Blanco, who mm. I think made his debut for Celt- for Celta Vigo as like a 17 or 18 year old and just never really panned out. Like he was, I think he was part of that great Spain U21 team uh, as well. Um, for whatever reason, all the, all the great goalkeeping prospects are Spanish, even though all the good goalies end up being German. So yeah. like you never really hear about like a German up and coming goalkeeping prospect and thinking, ah, oh, he's going to be crap, you know? The other player I had was Mattia Perrin, who I just think made the switch to Juventus a little bit too early. And I think that's we're gonna that's also gonna be a recurring theme is players moving to big clubs a few years before they probably should have and just getting shelved onto the bench and they have no real time to develop on the pitch. But I think Keppa, you know, someone who was bought, he's the most expensive goalkeeper of all time. He's probably going to be the most expensive goalkeeper of all time for a long time. And he, every time he gets put out now for Chelsea, gets extremely scrutinized or is forced into an error or more frequently, it's an unforced error. And we're all talking about him, not because he's a vaunted prospect, but because he's an absolute liability. So to go from probably the most expensive, one of the most expensive players at his position, the most expensive player at his position of all time, to now being you know second to Eduard Mendy under Frank Lampard, I think the conversation starts and ends with Kepa Ritsa Balaga. I mean, um, yeah, I will say like Mattia Perrin, is only 28 and Keppa is still 26. Like it's totally possible that Keppa could move back to a, like a Valencia or something. And Mattia Perrin has been fine for Genoa. Like these are players who might end up going on to mm. have like totally fine careers. Although I would say it's more likely that Perrin does well than Keppa um, just due to like, the, I think the psychological burden, Yeah, but definitely goalkeeping compared to other positions, a few bad matches can really derail your entire career. Um, which I don't think is necessarily the case for other players. Well, yeah, my other player that I had written down here was Loris Karius, just because he was brought in to supplant Mignolet. And then we all know how that went, just how one match completely ruined his Liverpool career and actually ended up with Liverpool going out and buying Allison for what was then a world record fee. So I, I think the difference is, though, Karius wasn't like a hot prospect at any point in time. Like he only made one appearance for like the U21 U20, U19 teams for Germany, which I think separates it. Like if you are brought in as, you know, the up and coming as like, you know, the future of the goaltending position, but all are the goalkeeping position. Sorry, too much hockey on my mind. Um, And, you know, you have been a consistent performer at like every level of youth internationals, sort of like um, Angus Gunn would be a good example. Um, You know, he was he was going to be the heir to Joe Hart's throne. Uh, I think it's a little different for Karius, but definitely, definitely, I think he fits into the category of players who made their move uh, maybe too early or to the wrong place. Yeah, I feel like Perrin in particular also is like part of this generation of Italian goalkeepers that thought Buffon was going to retire and there was just never like a passing of the torch. And so he kind of got passed over in a lot of ways. And now like Donnarumma is going to supplant him so I, I feel like he just kind of was born at the wrong time like talking about a little bit going back to Rory Smith's like concept of contingency and all of this like I feel like he's just the wrong age because he never got the opportunity to really be like the Italy number one um, and instead the game has kind of moved past him despite the fact that he's now the number two or even three anyways so are we sold with Kappa yeah so I think it makes our team a lot weaker yeah I was gonna say we're starting strong <laughs> Caleb do you want to get us started with our back three? We're playing. Yes. A, I think we're playing a three at the back. We decided, right, boys? Yeah, I think I think that makes sense. Um, mm. I think so. The way I'm interpreting this a little bit is players that like were not complete flops. Like Keppa might be more complete flop, um, but looking for players that like somewhat established themselves and then for whatever reason 
whether due to injury or, or otherwise, like their form just kind of like dropped off um, or, or they were just never able to really realize their potential. And I think no center back of the last decade or so really epitomizes that more for me than Holger Bodstuber, who looked like he was going to be a truly dominant center back for Bayern Munich, was developed in the system, had some injury problems starting around his age, like 24 season. And it took him literally like four or five years before he was able to get back to regular football, at which point he just was no longer a German national team quality player, no longer a Bayern quality player, um, and now kind of splits time with some other players at Stuttgart right now. I would say in sort of a similar vein, my, my pick would be Eliaki Mangala. Again, m- made a move. To, he started off at, I think, Porto and then uh, made his move. He was like he was like the, the center back prospect um, of like 2013 or 14. And then between injuries and form and some loans, he just never really quite cut it. I'm not exactly sure where he is now. Is he back in Spain? Is he, is he Valencia at, still? Maybe he's found his level. Uh, maybe not. But Mangala made his move and it just did not quite work out for him. And you know, if you're still at Valencia right now, that you are not especially good. It means, <laughs> it means that there's means literally that no more. <laughs> Peter Lim hasn't found the, uh, the way to sell you for about six million. Um, yeah. Shall we have the conversation about? Mamadou Sakho. I think we should. I don't know. Did you guys read the article this week? Yes. About how, okay, That's yeah. why I want to have okay. a conversation. Yeah. So I think yeah, yeah, yeah. this is a perfect example of, you know, something that was totally out of his control. Uh, you know, a, a false positive drug test before the Europa League final in 2016 for Liverpool. And he's just now been cleared of that charge. And we know what's happened to him since he moved from Liverpool to Crystal Palace, where he's kind of been in a so-so Premier League defender on a so-so Premier League team. But I think had that not happened, he would have, he would probably still be at least a rotational option for Liverpool because he's a quality defender and he was a quality defender for Liverpool. And he was a vaunted prospect making the move from PSG over to Carlo Ancelotti's PSG over to Brendan Rodgers' Liverpool back in the day. I, if I'm, if I'm Sacco, I want like restitutions. I want like, I want payment from UEFA for, you know, the denial of a great career. Like this is a guy who was, you know, probably the third or fourth center back on France's depth chart at the time. And now he's, you know, a Crystal Palace, you know, bottom of the bottom half of the Premier League sort of rotational option, which is too, which is kind of sad. And I remember he used to be just like such a joyful player. Like you would see him on his like Instagram live cycling around Paris and just like bantering around with like all these French players. And I think that, there's definitely a big psychological toll that like obviously being unjustly accused uh, of something can do. So definitely feel for him. He's only 28, right? So he, he still has, you know, for by center back standards, he has like six or seven more years left in him. Maybe he goes back to France. It seems like defenders have a lot of luck, like going back to France because Shelny did it. Um, Debussy has done it as well. Yeah, certainly. I think they're, there's something to be said about like, even if, even if he wasn't, you know, going to be staying on with the clock project, I feel like if that stuff with UEFA hadn't happened, he would have gotten a move to do a pretty, you know, a still a pretty sizable club and he would have been able to continue his career. And he also would have been able to, you know, play at the world cup and be with that world cup winning squad. You know, like Adil Rami was the player that traveled instead of him in 2018 <laughs> to the, yeah, to the world cup uh, finals. So I certainly think, you know, UEFA deprived him of, a World Cup winner's medal, and potentially even a Premier League winner's medal if he had stayed on with Liverpool. Fair enough. So I think that that rounds out our our back three, I guess. Maybe we can hop into, are we doing a midfield four, midfield five, kind of see what happens? Nick, do you want to start us off? We'll do snake draft style with a, a midfield pick. Yeah. Yeah, I would love to. I think that the midfield is probably going to be like the most interesting of our debate because I feel like defenders you know you don't you don't quite hear about defenders until they become you know 23 to 25 years old and they get bought by a big club like Nathan was saying about Mangala but I feel like midfield prospects you know certainly you hear about them way before you know they've hit their prime think about the likes of Martin Erdegaard back when he was 15 years old but there there is a player Caleb that I think you are familiar with highly vaunted prospect at Barcelona back in the day no vowels in this man's (laughs) 
in this man's last name. I think there actually is one, but it's Boyan Kirkich. See, I feel like he's like the prototypical player that we would want in this kind of 11. But again, like he has totally found his level. Like he is a, he is a good player in a average league, uh, making big money to be, you know, one of the focal points of, you know, this team. Um, but I feel like the reason that you can classify him as like failed to a certain extent is just because you have the direct comparison of Messi, who obviously was breaking through at the exact same time. Um, and, you know, the very, very different paths that these two players took. And honestly, I think there's a lot, there are more Barcelona players like Christian Teo, who I think you could also like categorize in this way, like players who were 17 or 18 making their first team debut scored, you know, five to 10 goals because of the pressure surrounding La Masia graduates in the first team. And also just the comparative uh, abilities of their peers in players like Messi. They just never really lived up to the hype. Well, I think the thing with Boyan is he's only 30 years old. He's He's been playing in MLS for what like over a year now, right? And I think if you look at his Wikipedia, he went from Barcelona to Roma to AC Milan. He tried it in the Eredivisie with Ajax. And then he made that famous move to Stoke, which, you know, we all thought that was when Stoke were acquiring talents like Ibrahim Afalai, Jordan Shakiri. They were kind of becoming like Bayern Munich, Barcelona light in many respects. Didn't work out for him at Stoke. He only scored 15 goals. And then he moved to Mainz and Alaves on loan in his final two seasons uh, with Stoke, who are then, you know, plummeting down to the championship by that point. So I think while you are right in like that Christian Teo comparison, Christian Teo is still having a fine career with Real Betis currently. And I think Kirkic was someone who, you know, came on during a Clasico. He was certainly talked about as one of the promising midfield prospects coming out of Barcelona more so than the likes of Christian Teo. I think it was him and Jeffren if I recall correctly, were like the two wingers that were coming up at that time. And now he's, you know, he's out of Europe entirely uh, playing playing in MLS. So Boyan is one of my picks. Boyan, yeah, Boyan's interesting. And Boyan's the reason why I'm like still kind of like suspect of like Ansu. Like I have like, I have like PTSD from the Boyan experience, um, which is that the guy scored, he had his most prolific season ever in his first season for Barcelona when he was like 17 and he scored 12 goals that year. He scored 10 goals in his like age 18, 19 season and then 12 in his, I guess, age 19, 20 season. The last, which was also the last season he ever got double digit scoring in his entire career was in the 2009, 10 year. And then he had some injury problems and that's what led to when he went to Roma to work with uh, Luis Enrique, who was the manager at that point. Um, but yeah, he just had a really str- and also there was the added pressure that he's Messi's like fourth cousin, something like that. And so there was this very public attempt to like link them. It was like Messi had come up like two years prior, and it was like, oh, it's Messi's like it's like the Messi lineage, like the bloodline is strong in La Masia, um, and it just never really worked out. Um, and it was also interesting, like in those games when he would score for Stoke, all the announcers would be like, oh, he's back. Right, like they were expecting, like every time he scored, they'd be like, "Oh my God, it's only taken four failed loan moves, but he's here now and he's back." This is Boyan. Um, so I think Boyan's a good pick for this team, and he's also the reason why I'm like always super sketched about like young attackers from Barcelona because since Boyan, honestly, we haven't really had a single player pan out. We've been through a lot. Christian Teo is a good example. People forget about Isaac Cuenca, who came up at the same time and was honestly better, but he tore his ACL like 17 times. They also threw him to Ajax for a season or two. Now I believe he plays in Israel, but you might have to double check me on that. Then we had Munir, who actually I think is probably the best of this crop and who's like a solid player for Sevilla. Um, And then Sandra Ramirez, who is definitely more Hesse. Oh, and don't forget De La Faux. Like, we've had a lot of really bad wide players. So Isaac Cuenca <laughs> does not play in Israel, Caleb. He followed the uh, Iniesta-Fernando Torres route 
and went to Japan. The uh, the Sergi Sampa route. It's, it's not just wide players who have struggled too, right? I feel like all of these center midfielders who are like, oh, the next Busquets, the next Xavi, have all failed. Like Sergi Samper, yes, he had his injury problems, but like he now plays in Japan. And I think that there's a bit of a fear in the back of your mind that like Alenia is just like another Sergi Samper and that Ricky Puig is just going to be another Sergi Samper and they're going to wind up playing their entire career for a Betis or for a Nantes or God forbid for Al Saad or something, you know, like there totally is this fear because it's been so long since like a genuine, honestly, Fati aside, a genuine La Masia talent breaking through. Well, I think it's like the Buffon discussion again, where it's like, everyone thought that Barcelona probably would have moved on from the Busquets era and like the Messi-Suarez partnership lasted for quite a long time. And I think Ansu is breaking in now because Barcelona don't have as many offensive options. So Ansu is getting that game time and he's able to actually develop as a player while like Busquets, Xavi, Iniesta, Evan Rakitic were all still like in and around the Barcelona team while Elena and Puig were breaking into the team. So I think it's one of those things where these players are kind of stuck in a generation that is still somehow rolling along. Also, just I did check. Cuenca played in Israel for one oh, season me. with Hapoel Beersheva mm. in the 2017-2018 season. Caleb, do you want to take us to your selection for our midfield or a player for us to debate the unfulfilled potential of? Sure. My my selection, um, and maybe this is not super inventive, is Jan M. Via, a player who broke out at, was it Rennes, very early on in his career, had some appearances with the French national team, um, but then had some major attitude issues, which resulted in him getting shunted off to Russia as his first move from Rennes when he was like 21 or 22, where he then proceeded to go AWOL. He just disappeared from the team and returned to France for a period of time, um, only making five appearances in that first season. He stayed in Russia for four years, made loan moves to Inter Milan and then Sunderland, although he recently this season moved to Olympiacos. Um, so very much a player of that like early 2010s, like post-World Cup, like we all hate each other and we hate the national team and we just have terrible attitudes. Like Nicholas Anelka is my God kind of deal. Um, <laughs> and he, he totally fits into that. And he's someone who like, he didn't even get the opportunity to make a move to like a big team and fail. No, his attitude issues were so extreme that Ren were like, yes, go to Russia. We like, we don't give a shit anymore. Yeah, Yanam Via is such a weird, I mean, what is it with French players, like French players in particular that have, they have this like massive issue with like professionalism and all of all varieties. Like it comes up every year. You see Alexander Lacazette, like, snorting hippie crack or having taking like recreational laughing gas or Antoine Griezmann in blackface. It's like these very basic examples of like being a decent professional. Blackmail. Oh, Literal yeah, blackmail. 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 Blackmail, sex tapes, prostitutes, uh, going on strike, which again, very French. Very French. I think there's just a thing where it's like when the French blow up, they do it unlike anyone else. They have to do it better than any other nationality. And I think there's something about like the French media that's also quite unforgiving. I think the two most unforgiving media nations are Italy and France. The shop is like secretly orchestrating like a reality TV show. Like they've been filming, they've been filming France all or nothing well, for the past like, 13 not, years. Not to bring it back to Ando Rami, but that guy got released from Marseille for being on a reality TV show when he was supposed to be, you know, like with the team. They're just but so Nathan. absurd. Samir Nasri. I don't even remember what he did, but I know he did something. Doping. Um, yeah, it was doping. doping. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Excellent. Well, okay. So that's one of my other picks. Actually, the pick that I had after the pick that I had after Boyan was Hatem Benarfa. Yeah, I'm pretty sure we can make an entire team out of just Spanish and French players who like who failed. But I, Hatem Benarfa, great pick. Although he's still like he's a he's a league standard player. No, he plays at Valladolid. No. Valladolid. Really? Yes. Not surprised. But someone who like was part of that Newcastle team that finished fifth under Alan Pardew, the one that had the likes of... He plays for Bordeaux. He plays for Bordeaux now. Oh, he plays for Bordeaux now? Okay. So he's back in Liga, but I think he was someone who, you know, probably the Dimitri, the Dimitri Paye of three years prior to when Dimitri Paye came into West Ham and took the league by storm. But I think it's someone like Jan Villa 
who had just a plethora of attitude issues because he was probably like one of the more technical players that the Premier League had seen up to that point. Obviously, now we've had like more of an international flavor to the league since then in, in, in the past decade or so. But I think that Newcastle team was just like the first, you know, lightning in a bottle side players like Cisse, players like Ben Arfa. Ben Arfa is another one like Envia, just another like French 30-something-year-old now that had all the promise in the world that personally she's gotten the way. Talk about falling up. This man somehow managed to secure a contract with PSG after falling out of favorite Newcastle, going to Hull, and then uh, and then going to Nice. So... Well, it's, it's fair, really, he it's scored sh- like he scored like 20 goals that season with Nice or something like that. Yeah, but yeah, it's too bad because he was like the prototype. He was such a great player, I think, because he was really he had a really good FIFA card that year, and I think that made fans like him a little bit more. Like there is a weird bit of like discursive power that comes with having a good FIFA card. But this man was like a highlight machine, um, and then. Instead, his career has, you know, trended more towards the Mathieu Valbuena and less towards the uh, Kylian Mbappe. I don't know if we have space in our midfield. I feel like we've gone through five players at this point, but I'm going to throw someone out there anyway. Throw as many players as you want out there and then we'll make the team at the end. Yeah. So I have another. This player has gone on a bit of a redemption arc, I think. Like more so that I I feel like he had similar issues to Hatem Ben Arfa um, mixed with a lack of end product as well, but Adele Tarat, um, who of what course a shout. briefly a Tottenham youth player who came up with QPR when they finally made it to the Premier League and was kind of their like bad boy attacking guy. Um, but terrible attitude issues um, saw him eventually leave QPR, go to Fulham, Milan. Then he strangely ended up at Benfica where in his first season at Benfica, he didn't even make appearances for the first team. No, they put him on Benfica B. So he was playing for the Benfica B team. And only really this past season, after another move to Genoa, has he finally kind of found himself a little bit at Benfica um, and become a more kind of sober center midfield player. So that's that's my shout out is Adele Tirat. He's been one of their best players, actually. I think he was named their, the league player of the month twice last year. Uh, but yeah, this is a player who was at one point, I think like 26 pounds overweight. And uh, when playing under Harry Redknapp, like Redknapp was forced to exclude him from the team and like forced him to, to train on his own. Also, when he was still a Spurs player on loan at QPR, he like randomly hyped up Arsene Wenger in like an interview which obviously didn't go down well. Like, I think he was, he was online at QPR and he was like, yes, I think I would have progressed a lot better at Arsenal. Like, Wenger's a French legend. Like, I could have done so much better under him. But yeah, he's only 31 years old. Like, he has had, a, he'll, he'll end up having, I think, a perfectly fine career, um, assuming that he can sort of keep his current Benfica form. There's, this is, that, that's a great, that's a great shot, though. I think there is something to be said that our team involves a lot of names like Tarat, Benarfa, Mvia, Sako, players who are, you know, foreign or considered, or like Tarat is a very prominent Muslim person. I think Hatem Benarfa the same is like a prominent Muslim person, Sako, obviously. It is something to consider about the fact that all these players who we assume, you know, weren't given the time, like weren't given second or third chances. It is kind of their race and their ethnicity does kind of play a factor into these things. And I think Tarat, it was something similar where like that QPR team just in general was awful. And I think like even though he had that weight issue, which is totally, you know, his fault, I think I remember him kind of being made to be the scapegoat of kind of why that team was sputtering towards the championship at that point. And I think there is something to consider about the fact that like maybe, you know, players who aren't don't have <laughs> to have like a little bit more of a foreign Muslim or African are kind of criticized a little bit more than other players. That QPR team was led by Pavel Popgrebniak at striker, who last year was fined and suspended for saying that it would be laughable to see a black player represent the Russian national team. So obviously, like, I don't think Popgrebniak is representative of like the English attitudes towards race and soccer, but there is something to be said about how like I think all of us could easily have picked like Jack Wilshere for this team, you know, but we didn't. And part of that is because I think he'd be an incredibly obvious pick because unlike some of these other players, he had a 10 year career for, you know, one of the biggest clubs in the world. 
Um, and it was sort of an injury thing rather than a personal thing that that saw him fall out of favor. But I definitely think that it's interesting to think about higher profile players of color or foreign players, at least in the English sense, who don't have as as long a leash as, you know, uh, a Jack Wilshere might. You know, it's totally possible that Jack Wilshere, even given his injury history, gets picked up by like Southampton or a right. team of that ilk. But I don't think you would see like, I, I mean, we didn't see adult rapt getting picked up by those teams and it's interesting to think that like not all the players we've picked but a lot of them were ones that you know left france um or north africa and then went to the premier league and that's kind of where these issues um arose and so it's kind of like the the transposition is is what is causing a lot of these issues but i think your your point is really good nick because i think it's it's telling i'm not sure you know what the full causal explanation is, but it's certainly a trend um, in, in the players that we see in these kinds of lists. Just keeping that in mind as we move along here is good, but there is a player that I know we were going to limit this to um, players who are still playing. However, this player just recently unretired and signed for a Swedish Division One club. I want to discuss American wonder kid, Freddie Adu. Wait, what? Yeah. Yes. Grant Wall, who's probably at this point like the preeminent American soccer reporter, just had a great podcast where Freddie Adu sort of told all for the first time. And he's been notoriously media shy for a long time. But I mean, when you're a 14 year old making your day, I think he was 14, right? Mm-hmm. He signed his he signed his MLS contract at the age of 14 for DC United, and became I think the youngest professional in American sports history across the world like most countries you you have to be at least 15 or 16 to debut in the first team he was born in 89 like he he came of age in the you know the the first big wave of soccer popularity in America and he you know he made almost 100 appearances for DC United as a 14 and 15 year old the media at the time I remember this dubbed him, quote-unquote, the next Pele. Well, you had that ad, right, mm -hmm. with Pele. Was it a Gatorade ad? You know what I'm talking about? I remember remember what you're talking about. It was was a drink. It was a drink. Yes. It's so tough because I think he is, like, the at at this point in time, the biggest what-if in American soccer history, for sure. Um, Because, you know, DC United traded him in the most American of moves, uh, Treyal Salt Lake, and then he moved to Benfica in what was supposed to be, like, his move but well that wasn't actually supposed to be his move because towards like the middle period of his dc united time as a 15 year old right he had a trial with manchester united who wanted to sign him but because he was 15 they couldn't get like the work permit sorted out so he ended up having to stay on at dc united so it's one of those things where it's like imagine if freddie adu moves to manchester united when he's 15 and then he's like playing alongside the likes of you know, Wayne Rooney on that, you know, on that track alongside those players who were coming up at Manchester United at that time. One of those things yeah. where it's like, like one one miniature thing goes wrong, like a work permit. Obviously a work permit is not a miniature thing. But like one miniature thing goes wrong. And like, <laughs> imagine how that could have affected his career. Right. But you can, you can just totally see like the steady decline from there because he had loans from but he never really made a made an impact in the first team at Benfica he was loaned out to Monaco I think OS Belensis I think he played in Turkey and then Brazil and Finland and Sweden and sort of all across the world I remember he made an appearance for uh the Las Vegas Lights (laughs) having just talked about being maybe loath to criticize certain players uh for uh personal issues I think there was I think there was a bit of a lot of complacency for Adu, and I think he's been pretty forthcoming about how he would skip. He he skipped training a lot of the time. I think there were some some mental issues as well. You know, definitely there is the chance for a redemption story of of him playing. It's almost like it, it sort of feels like a Netflix miniseries, almost like, or the Hallmark soccer edition where you know formerly great prospect finds his way to Sweden to you know do a comeback tour, but. If he can find success and sort of happiness, I know he worked as a coach for a little bit. No one's saying that he's going to be, you know, a U.S. national team player or anything like that. But if he can find a way to be a professional again, I think the soccer community as a whole will benefit. Yeah, I think it's worth talking about the first American generational FM Wonder Kid prospect. Talking about FM Wonder Kids, Freddie Adu. Back in the days of, uh, back when it was championship manager and not even football manager. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, and interesting to note as well that he uh, his family were they won the green card lottery in uh, in the late nineties. So something very American about that. Anyways, Nathan, you're gonna get us started with our front one. Oh my God, I have the best left winger for this position. A player whose performances for his new club were so bad has made that club stop scouting operations in this player's country of origin. It's Ola John. <laughs> so Ola John made his breakthrough for, for Twente as like a 19-year-old or <laughs> year old in 2010. Um, and this man, this man got his... <sighs> On his move to Benfica, and he was so bad for Benfica that Benfica no longer operate a scouting department in the Netherlands. <laughs> really unprecedented stuff from any football club to just completely abandon a territory when it comes to scouting talent, especially one as prolific at creating stars as the Netherlands. But yeah, Caleb Ola John uh, certainly. Certainly someone who I think the Dutch national team, there's been a couple of those Dutch national team players who I think were, you know, vaunted wingers or forwards and have just gone on to not have especially phenomenal careers. I think of CM De Jong, I think, you know, a little bit of, from a Liverpool perspective, Ryan Bobble, who I think has had like a fine professional career, but he was supposed to be like the next big thing as well. There, There's a lot of those like Dutch wingers, Dutch forwards who their careers haven't quite played out to the heights that that we probably thought were possible, especially considering the Dutch the Dutch know how to produce a footballer or two. Yeah, it's funny because I, I feel like all these players are are ones that like I first heard about in uh, FIFA 12. Like for whatever reason, they were just like, like Ola John was just like insane pace, right? Like you could not keep up with Ola John. Even I have a vivid memory of playing in like a Champions League or quarterfinal or something. And I was up against Porto and lo and behold, Elia Mangala was the one who scored the like winner from a corner. Like some of these players, they really were like, everybody knew who they were when they were like 20 years old. Um, and, and then you just see where they are now. And Ola Jada is still kicking around in Portugal with uh, Guimarães, I believe. He um, he signed for for RKC Walwijk this past year. Yeah, for uh, worst team in the Netherlands. I, uh, I think it's I think it's important to note that in his time in like the championship with Wolves and Reading, he had a lot of injury problems. And I think the championship would have been the perfect division for him to you know sort of re kickstart his career. But I think especially his time at Wolves, he just suffered injury after injury after injury, and this was like pre you know the takeover at Wolves and they've become like the Lobos Portuguese machine that we associate Wolves to be now. But I think, you know, that level would have been perfect for him, but I think injuries just got in the way. It's too bad because he was definitely also like Bruno Martins Indy. I feel like the Dutch, the Dutch produced a lot of Adam Meyer Maher as well, who is now back and performing pretty well um, for, I think AZ maybe or Feyenoord, one of those, one of the bigger teams. So Definitely Ola John, a player Utrecht. who, better or for worse, Utrecht, thank you. Yeah, a player who, for better or for worse, uh, caused Benfica to focus perhaps on other areas of their scouting department. Um, do we have a, a, a an out-and-out forward who we want to get to? I have one. I'm going with Alex Pato, which which might be controversial because he he has been prolific at various points in his career, but like, he wasn't the, you know, like, caca, like, Jesus part two Brazilian guy from a lot. No, but he was going to be. That's what they wanted him to be. This was, like, pre-Neymar, you know, pre obviously pre-Gabriel Jesus. But this was back when, like, pre, like, you know, Brazil at one point were lining up with, like, people like Fred and Joe at Striker in, like, the 2014 World Cup. Real, real workmen. <laughs> Yeah, and that is all because yeah the real the real blue collar Brazilian striker, um, and that is all I think in part because Alexander Pato just couldn't get it together at AC Milan in Europe, and I think you know he's had multiple spells at various clubs in Europe. Alexander Pato is actually my pick as well, Caleb. And there was that phenomenal game against Barcelona that I think was was the game in which propelled him into international superstardom. And then injuries got in the way. And I think he just couldn't keep coming up with like those big moments and big matches. His volume as a striker wasn't particularly great. And then I think his level ended up being back in his native Brazil. 
I, I remember he had that really weird move to Chelsea where he came in on loan and like made like one or two appearances uh, back when Chelsea had like Ramirez and Oscar and were sort of stockpiling random Brazilians. Right. Um, I think a theme of this podcast should be how many of these players have Chelsea Football Club killed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, we could we didn't even talk about like Marco Marine or Lucas Piazzone or like any of the Chelsea youth players who just never really made the grade. But Pato, I mean, sort of like I think he and maybe even Gabi Goal as well um, were sort of Brazilian players who were briefly prolific in Europe and then have sort of found a footing um, with clubs like Flamengo or Corinthians or Sao Paulo or wherever they wind up uh, in Brazil. A lot of them have also gone on to China and had success there, which I think is honestly like pretty commendable. Like if I know in the case of Oscar, um, if you want to provide for your family and don't necessarily want the pressure of playing in, you know, playing for Chelsea, go to China. Like as the, as the, as the youths say, secure your bag. Um, or if you're Alexander Pato and, you know, you want to go to Tianjin, Qianjin and make, you know, 40 million for a season. Like I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm never going to be one of the people who will like knock a player for seeking out an opportunity like that, but definitely a good pick. Cause I think Pato, just because of the fact that he was on that, the last great Milan team. Um, I think he, he's, his career is definitely make, make it makes him suitable for for this team. Right. I think Alexander Pato was another player who, another Brazilian player who kind of let the media storm get to him. I remember he was like engaged to a pretty prominent Brazilian actress. And then that actress ended up splitting things off with him because Pato was partying too hard. He was, he not only had all this hype, but in some sense he was living up to the hype and then he just had massive injury problems. And so that's why he had to kind of like slink back to Brazil where he was relatively prolific, honestly. Um, but then he tried making like a brief foray back to Europe with that Chelsea move, with that move to Villarreal the year after. But then when it just was clear that he was not, you know, ever going to hit the heights again, that's when he dipped to China. Um, and now he's back in Sao Paulo, kind of just living it up in the Brazilian row. You know, like Caleb, this is probably an unsexy pick, but I think it's about time we have a, a real conversation about this man because I think we've been flirting around it on this podcast i think we do have to talk about mario balotelli i almost feel like he he accomplished both so much also so little like at the end of the day he has his footprint on probably the all-time greatest soccer moment um at least the all-time greatest premier league moment but you also have to think about the fact that that came within a year of him getting substituted off in the 27th minute for trying a uh, a roulette backheel goal against the LA Galaxy in preseason. So it's like his entire career was just like full of these constant ups and downs. And, you know, he would score two goals and get a red card. It was sort of like the, uh, you've heard of the Gordie Howe hat trick of a goal and assist in a fight. It's sort of like, you know, a goal and assist in a red card. It was like the Balotelli hat trick. So it's so hard because like, oh man, he led Italy to a, a Euro finals appearance. But even now it's just like, the, the personal issues for better. Well, I think, worse. I think the, the first place you have to start with Balotelli is the fact that he broke, he broke a lot of ground as a young Italian player. And I think to come back around to this subject, I think he got a lot of scrutiny for being black. You know, he was the first really prominent black Italian superstar, soccer superstar that is. And he was always going to get, you know, he, he, he started off as a teenager in Milan before eventually being brought in by Mancini to Manchester City, where I think he became a superstar at a really early age. And we know like the Premier League, when you're a superstar at 20 to 21, you either stay grounded and you end up on the trajectory where you win championships and you become a world-class player. You're in a good system, you're in a good structure. But I think the problem with Manchester City at that point was that it was really the infancy of you know, the Manchester City structure that we know now. Like, obviously now I think they have far more of a handle on what the identity of that club is back when it was sort of like the prototype City Galacticos era, for lack of a better word, under Mancini, where they were just kind of accumulating talents willy-nilly. Like, if you look at the Manchester City back line when they won the championship that day against QPR, like, Julian Lescott and Michael Richards were in the team. He ended up falling out with Mancini, going back to Milan, and I think his... His big move, his final big, his final, you know, chance to prove himself 
was replacing Luis Suarez at Liverpool. And the fact that you can sit here and say that sentence in 2020 kind of tells you exactly what went wrong there. Honestly, of all the players we've talked about, he's the one who I think had the most like raw talent, right? Like he's objectively very good. I mean, you look at his career stats, 151 goals in 383 games. That is like on its own, a pretty respectable return. Um, And I think the issue for him was that he could never really ground himself anywhere. Um, And, and Mancini could only like kind of try to bring him under his wing uh, for so long. And unfortunately, like more so than any other player that we've talked about, he kind of got in his own way. Um, And I think since then there have been other kind of structural factors that have been issues like in the past year or two, like the rampant racism in Italian football has definitely made it difficult for him. Um, And I think that's obviously a factor, but I think early on in his career, in a lot of ways, it was just the fact that he actually had so much ability that he didn't need to put in that much work to do well. Unlike some of these other players who I think were not quite as skilled um, and could have been more skilled if only they'd put in work. The problem is he was actually too good. Like he was actually too good at a young age. And that meant that he never really had to confront his ego at all. And he could just blow up fireworks in his bathroom. And that was cool. Right. I think he he really had the potential to become the next Slaton, even though I think there's a there's big overlap. I think in terms of personality, but also in terms of skill set, like Balotelli also scored ridiculous goals, like ridiculous, swervy, creative flicks, acrobatics. Um, no, he but, was an extremely, extremely technically proficient player. Like Hale right. was saying, he was just such a raw, talented, gifted player on the ball. And also he was just incredibly, he, he had like the way that he, he struck a ball, the way that he was able to shoot from distance, it was unparalleled back in 2012. Right. Imagine what Zlatan's career would look like. One, if he were black, but two, if he were also occasionally shit. And the difference is no matter where he's gone, whether it be the MLS or the Premier League or all across Europe and, and across various you know, major Italian teams, he's scored bangers consistently. He's kept his sort of aggressive persona intact and delivered relative success wherever he's gone. And for Balotelli, I just don't think that that success has fallen around, whether it be on him or on like systems like Caleb and you were saying. Well, I think about what Caleb was saying about the fact that he was never able to find a place to ground himself. I think there are many other players that we've talked about today that have been able to go back to their home countries and sort of rehab their careers. You know, think about Hatem Benarfa. He he went he went from a really raucous time in the Premier League and he was able to transition back to France, to Nice, to rehab his career and put up decent statistics. And I think Balotelli stuff in France didn't pan out just because things at Marseille were a bit rocky when he got there and he was never able to sort himself out due to injuries and because I think his reputation preceded him. But you would think that the perfect place for him to go back to would be his hometown of Brescia. The fans booed him out of the stadium, his hometown fans booed him out of the stadium. Like Caleb said, the rampant racism was just atrocious the way that they like, well, quote unquote, welcomed him back. Uh, And now he's not even... He's being denied a wage at his hometown club and he's having to like train on his own and he's yet to find another team. And I think it's just really sad. Like Nathan was saying, just the fact that like his reputation just got caught in a whirlwind along with his identity and who he is. And this person who I think broke a lot of ground for the Italian national team and players coming up behind him that, you know, kind of want to follow in his footsteps. We're going to end up talking about him as someone who probably has the most wasted potential of anyone on this list. Anyways, that is going to be our unfulfilled potential XI. Let us let us run through the team one more time. In goal, we have Kepa Aritzabalaga. Our back three is Mamadou Sako, Eloquiem Mangala, and Holger Badstuber. Our midfield that's going to concede so many goals <laughs> is Boyan Kirkic, Freddie Adu, Jan Mvia, Hatem Benarfa. <laughs> And adult rat. Adult to rat. <laughs> and up top we have Alexander Pato and Mario Baltelli. I think that's an XII. 
plus Ola, plus it? Ola, plus Ola Jean, which would oh, make it. Ola Jean. The Fiends were playing a three-six-three, but it's very unorthodox <laughs> because of their failed potential. The uh, footballing authorities are letting us play an extra player to compensate. It's a handicap. Listen, so, uh, if exactly. you're if you were to drop, if you were to drop that team on like FIFA twelve, FIFA thirteen, obviously Keppa would be an infant. Um, <laughs> fourteen-year-old Keppa. Yeah. <laughs> okay, if Freddie Adu could do it, then we then so exactly. Keppa. If Freddie Adu could do it, Keppa reads the blog and could be making saves on this team. That is our unfulfilled potential XI. And just a reminder: go read that New York Times article. But there is no such thing as a bad player because I think it really illuminates a lot of what we talked about here today. This has been a really fun episode of Corner Kick, lads. I think we should do more of these in the future. These more conceptual-esque episodes. I've been Nick Vinden. Caleb Rhodes. Nathan Strauss. If you're invited to your brother's wedding and there's more than like, you know, 50 people, 20 people, wear a mask. If it's in Cairo, just don't go at all. Uh, <laughs> I've been Nick Vinden. This has been Corner Kick and we will see you all next time.